0: I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. If this is your first time here or you're visiting with us, we'd love to give you a Bible. We read right from the Bible, and we are very happy to share that with you. Those of us who have been here for a while, if you were to ask them, what are you doing here? What's your mission? What's your purpose? We would all go, oh, I know what the mission of the church is. In fact, Pastor Tom, Pastor John, Pastor Austin, Pastor Jeremy, they they frequently pointed out. In fact, if I remember correctly, it's on a banner. It's actually on two banners, but we skillfully hid them so you can't see them behind the pillars. But if you know our mission, say it with me, advancing the gospel to make disciples who make disciples. Okay, We constantly need to be reminded of that. However, if I were to ever have an opportunity to embro- embroider one more phrase in there, I would add one phrase because I love that and I believe that that is our mission, but that focuses on the individual part of our mission, making disciples who make disciples. But it's always important to remember the corporate side, that ultimately these disciples are formed into local church communities, Christ honoring communities. It was never God's intention to just save a bunch of individual people. It was always to form his forever family on planet earth in Christ-honoring communities, because that's how he's honored. That's how he's glorified. In the midst of a fallen, lost world, he calls out communities of people, and he brings them together. And we remember the expression, you, you can choose your friends, but you can't choose your family. That's particularly true In the church, you can choose your friends, but you can't choose your forever family because God chooses whom he brings to himself. Now, because of the fact that there is a real devil, he hates Christ-honoring communities because he knows the power and influence of a Christ-centered community of people, how that is God's instrument to rescue people in this fallen world, to see people healed, helped, whole made whole, and ultimately brought into eternity. So he does everything he can to destroy local churches. And in some cultures, he destroys them from the outside through persecution. In some cultures, he destroys them from the inside through false teaching, but also through relational fractures. So this morning, we're continuing our series called Rebuilding a Healthy Church. And last week, we saw the Apostle Paul used the metaphor of a field to show us that Leaders are disposable. You don't say to a farmer, Wow, that's a beautiful cornfield you made. He's like, Well, I I sowed it, but ultimately God made the sun, and it's really up to Him. This morning, Paul's going to turn to an architectural illustration, a building, and he's going to talk about the church, this Christ centered community in terms of architecture. And, And we're going to look at contractors. We're going to look at realtors, and we're going to look at inspectors. But it's God's design that each Christ-honoring community has some, some essential qualities. One of them is love. In fact, that's the primary one. Christ wants us as a community to love one another. And the thing is, that's hard. You ever watch Family Feud? Did you ever notice that no matter what the person says, so Uncle Barry comes and and they go, things in a refrigerator, and Uncle Barry goes, "Uh, um, a dictionary. And what does the family do? They all go, yeah, good answer, good answer. And we all know it wasn't a good answer. You don't find dictionaries in refrigerators. But they've been taught that we're to love one another. And the Bible teaches that when we come to Christ, we're taught by God to love one another but we also have to continually be reminded of the the necessity of loving one another. So when, when unity and love breaks down, now we have cracks in the foundation. So Christ is trying to build holy, loving, unified communities of people who are very different, different in race, different in economic status, age, background, social, cultural things, to bring us together, and I know in, in theory we want to be like the Waltons. Good night, John boy, and everybody gets along. But in reality, it's much more difficult. So Paul's trying to heal in this section, chapters 1 through 4, a division that had come about in the church. There was division. There were cracks in the foundation. There were, there were these horizontal cracks between one another and excluding Christ. There were also vertical cracks between the people and their leaders. And so this morning we're going to see three things about a Christ-centered community. How do we repair those cracks? And what's that going to look like in our church? Number one, we have to be reminded that a Christ-centered community must be built properly. It must be built properly. So this would be a word to the contractors. A proper perspective on building a Christ-centered church... We have to be careful that we're building it properly. You can build a church if your goal is simply to get people. There's lots of ways to do that. We can have, as one church in Bucks County, I saw in the paper, had free tattoos on Sunday morning. That might draw people, but I'm thinking, why not just go all out and have free beer on Sunday night? I mean, we'd pack the place out. But that doesn't please God. So Paul's going to give us an analogy here. He's going, to, he's going to put away the agriculture. He's going to say, think about being a builder. Now, my dad was a builder. He built my home. He built homes in the area. And I was too dumb growing up because I wasn't a believer and I was a fool to say, Dad, could you teach me how to build? Now, it's scary if you hand me a tool. My brother-in-law came once to replace a door in our house, and he had it all shimmed up. And um, I just remember... Suddenly, as he asked me to hold the door, the door falling right out the front and <laughs> down the steps. And he's like, hey, how about if you just, um, just go on over there? Just... <laughs> so I realized maybe that's not my calling. So Paul says in verse 10, he goes, look, as a contractor, I built this church. I started it. But, but let's notice the first thing, that the gospel, when we're talking about materials, the gospel must be the centerpiece, the foundation In building a church community. So, look at verse 10. Paul says, according to the grace of God, which was given to me, as a wise master builder, I laid a foundation. Now, he's obviously using an analogy, like the foreman, like like the manager. He goes, I was the one who laid the foundation, and and we all know that the foundation is the, the very heart and soul of any building. It doesn't matter how pretty it is if the foundation's poor, it's coming down. In fact, years ago, I remember at Cairn when they did some construction, they found an area that was built probably 70 years ago where they put cinder blocks on top of one another with with no mortar. That's novel. Thank God that part of the building didn't fall down. But Paul says, look, I laid the foundation, and it was according to the grace of God. He always would say that. He would always recognize that as an apostle... It was an extreme privilege for him to be building the church. And he recognized that anything he could do for Christ wasn't about him, it was about God's grace. So he says later in this book, that famous verse, by the grace of God, I am what I am, but his grace to me was not in vain. And I labored more than anybody else, but it was really God's grace. In in chapter one of Romans, he says, I've received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith. In other words, he knew that his calling from God was to build these communities. In Romans 12, he said, through the grace given unto me, I say to you. So he always gave God the credit and realized that his position was from God. But he says, here's what I did. I laid a foundation. Now, what does he mean by that? Well, he's gonna explain that foundation in verse 11. He says, no one can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. And the idea here is that It's not just Jesus Christ, but as he said earlier, it's Jesus Christ and him crucified. The centrality of the gospel must be the the most important part of a church. It must be preached all the time. The death, burial, resurrection of Christ. Jesus came to save sinners. Jesus is our only hope. Jesus is our only way. It's sad. Churches are trying so hard to build that sometimes they lose this I remember my wife and I going to a church in Arizona uh, to visit my daughter, and the name of the church was Common Ground. And I understand what they were trying to do. They were trying to, to attract unbelievers on common ground. And um, so, so we remember, you know, during the worship service, they're, they're playing a Cat Stevens song. And, and I'm going, what does this have to do with Jesus? And then, then as I'm driving up into Tucson, I see this big billboard called The Cool Church. And I look it up, and and this very tan, slick guy comes on the video. He goes, we used to um, just be called this church, but everyone said, oh, that's the cool church. And so we thought, let's go with it. And so now there's the cool church. I guess the rest of us go to the nerd churches. But the point would be, it's not about the cool church. It's about Christ. And so Paul says, I just came and I preached the gospel. I told people, you're a sinner, you're lost. There's no hope without Jesus Christ, and he's the only way, and it's not good works, it's not becoming a baptarian You have to give yourself to Christ, and that's the central message we preach here. There's no other way to get to heaven but through Jesus. Jesus is Lord of all. Jesus is your only hope, and if you've never cast yourself on Jesus to be your Lord and Savior, do it, because if you don't, apart from Christ, Jesus said, unless you believe that I'm he, you're going to die in your sins, and so that's Got to be the center message. Now, with that in mind, as we keep the gospel central, Paul says, now, I laid that foundation of the gospel. Others came in afterward. And he says, those contractors need to be careful. So, for example, he says, now, let's let's keep reading. I laid the foundation, but he said, in verse 10, another is building upon it. Let each man be careful how he builds upon it. Now probably the first person to build upon Paul's foundation was actually Apollos. In the book of Acts, chapter 18, it says, Apollos went to Corinth, and when he arrived, he greatly helped those who had believed through grace. He says he was eloquent in the scriptures, he taught them the word, they were really encouraged. They loved Apollos, and he helped to build this community. More people were getting saved, more people were studying their Bibles, more families were being strengthened. But notice his warning now. He says, gospel-centered leaders will be rewarded for their work. But there's a warning here. He says, let each man be careful how he builds. So now he's going to use an illustration of materials When it comes to uh, building right now, anybody who's in the trade realizes that the cost of materials has skyrocketed. So there's an enormous temptation to say, just give me whatever's cheapest. But what Paul's gonna do here is he's gonna use an analogy to simply say, if you were building a building in a hot, dry, arid Southern California area, which is well known for swift fires, You would want all your materials to be non-combustible. So he says, there's two ways to build. You can use metal and things that don't burn, or you can use wood and stuff that does burn. And it's all going to be an analogy. And let's, let's take a look at it. He goes, if any man builds upon the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones. Now, there's all kinds of discussion. Why did he choose these metals? And is this ultimately a picture of the temple versus wood, hay, straw? Okay, the two things that those have in contrast is one burns, the other doesn't. He says in verse 13, each man's work will become evident for the day will show it. Now, interestingly, think about this. If you drove up to a house of, of construction or, or a remodeled house, you, 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 could, you couldn't really tell the quality at your first glance, right? At least if, if it looked nice on the outside. I don't know where the 2 by 4s are. I don't know what they used for shingles. I don't know whether they have enough studs and enough nails and enough foundation concrete. So. At first, it may look beautiful, but he says here, and and he he gives us a tip. He says, the day will show it. Now, he doesn't tell us what he means by that, but he says, the day will show it. And then he uses an analogy of fire, and he says this, there's going to come a day where there's going to be a fire that passes through everyone's community, and only the non-combustible stuff will last. And again, we're sitting there going, well, what does he mean by that? You know, throw me a bone. Like, what are you talking about, Paul? Paul? But, but he will, but, he, but he's putting it out there for us to think about. He says, the day will show it. So I'll give you an analogy. Years ago, I was reading about a development in Florida when, when a, a hurricane went through. There was an area in the, this big retirement community where all the roofs blew off. And at first, it looked like a simple, well, you know, that's how hurricanes work. It's like tornadoes might my wife and I spent the weekend at my sister-in-law's down in the Deptford, New Jersey area. Remember that tornado that touched down? There's areas, just small little areas, maybe half a mile, just devastated. All the trees are ripped out of the ground, it's crazy. So at first it looked like, oh wow, it just, the, the, the hurricane hit this side, but it didn't hit this side. But upon closer inspection, it turned out that the reason why half the roofs were ripped off is because the contractors decided to cut corners about halfway through. And so the materials and the type of building that they did on half of the community was not standard for areas where you're going to get tornadoes and hurricanes. But no one knew that when the houses were built. The day revealed it. And suddenly, uh uh-oh, this was junk. Now, again, I have to go, well, what does Paul mean by that? So look at verse 14. If any man's work which he has built upon it remains he shall receive a reward. By now, you can imagine that as this letter is being read, okay, don't picture the church at Corinth, one big community, a bunch of house churches, right? And each house church that's reading this letter, whoever the leaders are, are sitting there going, is he talking to me? Wait, is he, is he, is he talking about me? And Paul's going, yeah, I'm talking to you, leader, because I built it in the foundation. Now you're building upon it. And there's going to come a day when Jesus is going to evaluate what you're doing. And if you did it right, you're going to be rewarded. But if you did it wrong, look at verse 15. If any man's work is burned up, he shall suffer loss. What does that mean? Well, when the Bible talks about rewards it tells us that you will either receive rewards or you will lose your rewards. And one of the things that the Bible teaches is the importance of persevering in following Christ. So, for example, the Apostle John said, watch yourself in 2 John 1, verse 8. He said, watch yourself. He said, you don't want to lose what you've accomplished. I want you to receive a full reward. So some of you have been serving the Lord for a long time. I've been doing pastoral ministry for 30 years. I could lose all of those rewards, if there are any, if I go south. And what's that going to look like? Because the leaders are thinking, well, what does he mean? He says, but I'll tell you one thing. You, you yourself will be saved, yet so as through fire. Wait, what? So here's the point. If you're a Christian... Nothing you do can remove you from from Christ. You won't lose your salvation. That's important. So if whoever these leaders are in the church, if they're true believers, Paul's saying, you might not get any rewards, you'll be saved yet so as through fire. Now, that's not too hard to imagine, right? We've seen pictures, videos, movies on the news of people running out of their house with nothing but the clothes on their back. Everything else was lost. Now imagine what it would be for a Christian. This would be almost like being saved by the skin of your teeth. So when you've heard the expression, oh, Jesus is going to say to all the Christians, well done. That's not true. He's not going to say to every Christian, well done. He'll say to every Christian, welcome into my kingdom. But why would he say, well done, if we haven't done well? And that, that makes me go, hmm, I never thought. Like, yeah, I have to answer him. Now, one thing I want to point out here when it says, so us through fire, unfortunately, this verse has been used to reinforce the doctrine of purgatory. Those of you who aren't familiar with this, the Roman Catholic Church teaches that after you die, you go to a place called purgatory where you purge away your sins for a time. You can't really know how long it will be, and that's why they have masses to try to get people out of purgatory. Can I tell you that that's not what the Bible teaches? Jesus in Luke 16 told an analogy of, of Abraham and, and uh, the poor man who was in Abraham's bosom and speaking to a man in hell, and, and, and Abraham said, there's a great gulf between us. There's no passing back and forth. So you either go to hell or you go to heaven. You don't go to purgatory. And so, in fact, one of the reasons why I could say this isn't talking about purgatory because he doesn't say, so you'll go through fire after you die. The fire is going to be when Christ returns. At that last day, he says there will be fire. This isn't a fire that you and I have to worry about after we die. So if you're a Christian, don't fear purgatory. Jesus paid it all. When Jesus hung on the cross, he said, it is finished. He didn't say, I did my part, now you have to do yours. And this is important. This is important for those of you who have come from different backgrounds to to find your peace and assurance that you don't need to be afraid of any punishment from Christ. In fact, I was sharing the gospel with 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 a man at a funeral and he told me, he said, listen, I believe that Christ died for me and that it's not by works. I believe that my salvation is entirely because Jesus died for me. And I knew his background, so I said to him, well, do you think you'll still have to go to purgatory? And he said, well, of course. I said, but you just told me that you believe that Jesus paid for all your sins. He said, yeah, but, but I, I'm not pure enough to go right into heaven. I still have to go into purgatory. Can I encourage you to consider that? Does the Bible teach that? I mean, think about what that says to Jesus. It's saying, Jesus, thanks for doing your part, but it basically wasn't enough. I guess when you said it's finished, what you meant is, it's kind of finished. So let's rest in this reality that Jesus paid it all, and we are completely forgiven followers. However, God doesn't say, so whatever, I'll come get you later. Then he says, now work for me. Because one day, when you stand before me, you'll either be rewarded or embarrassed. But the encouraging thing is, you're still in if you're a believer. Amen? All right, so the first truth that we focused on is is from the contractor's perspective, and that was a Christ-centered community must be built properly. But the second truth that we're going to focus on here is having to do with, well, actually, I want want to point out one more thing about building properly. I forgot about this. Verse 16 and 17. Gospel-centered leaders will be rewarded, but gospel, now listen, gospel Demolition will bring God's damnation. Yes. That's what I said. Gospel demolition will bring God's damnation. You know, it's funny. Years ago, I used to pastor Edgley Church. Some kids broke into the church, and they wrote bad words on the bulletin board. And another time, while we were having prayer meeting, we had Dunkin' Donuts out on the table outside that we're gonna we'd have prayer and then donuts. They go together, right? Prayer and donuts. So the kids in the neighborhood broke in and stole the donuts. And the people were, can you imagine what God's gonna do to those kids for writing on the blackboard and stealing donuts in his church? Can you imagine? And I go, frankly, I I don't think God's all that worried that they wrote bad words in a building. Because look what Paul says in verse 16 and 17. He says to these leaders who were dividing the church, who were maybe, maybe not even believers and teaching a false gospel. He says, do you not know that you are a temple of God and that the spirit of God dwells in you? Now, first of all, I thought this was a common phrase of Paul. Do you not know? I found out that it's used 10 times in Corinthians. Almost never used in the, in the other books. So this is not exactly like a friendly, like you know, it's like because other times he'll say like to the to the Thessalonians, "Do you remember what I told you?" But but this is kind of like has an edge to it. Do you not know that demolition will bring God's damnation? He says, "Look at verse seventeen. If any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him." That's strong language. What does it mean to destroy the temple of God? Well, I think, number one, if you're teaching a false gospel, God does not look favorably on people who distort the gospel. Galatians 1 says, if you twist the gospel, you are under the curse of God. The Apostle Paul, as he would see false teachers, he called them enemies of the cross. And anybody who teaches a false gospel is destroying the church. But what about relationally destroying the church? What were these leaders doing that caused Paul to be so adamant that to say, do you not realize that if you keep destroying God's church, God will destroy you? Now, I have to wrestle with that theologically. What does that mean that God would destroy you? Normally, that's a word that's used of being put into hell, right? So one of two things is going on here. Either destroy you doesn't mean that you're going to go to hell. It simply means you're going to to die. You're going to die soon. Somebody once said it this way. God would rather take you home and crown you, but you destroy his church and he might crown you and take you home. Still take you home. So either he's just saying God may take you home or these people who are destroying the temple of God are not true Christians. And so you say to God, God, why are you so worried? What's the big deal if people mess up your community? So what if there's a second Baptist and a third Baptist and and we can't get along with one another? Here's why he's so worried. He goes, the temple of God is holy, and that's what you are. He says, here's why it disturbs me, because it's the dwelling place of God on planet Earth, and God cares about his reputation. This is why Paul said in 2 Corinthians 6, he said, come out from among the world and be separate. See, if we're, if this little group of people, right, us together, we need to be different from the world. We need to have a godliness, a love, a unity, a different set of values. Otherwise, we have no impact. God says, come out from among them and be separate. Second Corinthians 6, and then he says this, and I will dwell among you. And then Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 6, we are the temple of the living God. Just as God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them, and I will be their God and they will be my people. We are the dwelling place of God. And when we meet corporately, there should be a sense of the Lord is in this place. Jesus said, when you gather in my name, I'm in the midst of you. And the Apostle Paul made a big deal about the power and presence of Jesus when Christians gather. It's not just, like, oh, what's up, bro? You see the Eagles game?" It's now we're gathered in the name of Jesus. And the, 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 the powerful, resurrected, risen, holy, sovereign Lord Jesus is walking in the midst of this church. And he loves his church. And he cares for its purity. And he examines us all. And it's his desire that we grow into a loving community because that's how he gets glory. What people think of local churches basically reflect what they think of Jesus. And that's why he said, let your good works shine before men so that they might see your good deeds and glorify your Father. And so with all of our wrinkles and rubs, let's let's allow the Lord Jesus to remind us how important it is to be careful as we build this church. So a Christ-centered church must be careful how they build. Number two in verses 18 through 23 we're going to see this a Christ centered community must be valued properly so the first word was to the contractors now it's to the realtors this is a seller's market isn't it this is the time when you go wow I think I'm going to sell my house it's never been worth more and then we all go oh yeah then where am I going to live And then some, like my brother, well, I just know that the economy is going to turn, so I think I'm going to sell my house, rent an apartment for a year, and then I'll have all that extra money. Well, maybe. He changed his mind. But the idea of what's valuable, okay? So what Paul's going to do is he's going to say, listen, here's the problem, Corinthian community, as I'm trying to rebuild you. Number one, he says Christian leaders... Should not value themselves too highly. Look how he says this in verse 18. Let no man deceive himself. If any man among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become foolish that he may become wise. Don't value yourself too highly. Now, here's the thing what is real humility? Some of you are very intelligent, okay? It's not humble for you to go, oh gosh, I'm as stupid as a stump. I can't do nothing. Humility isn't false, you know, like, oh, I don't have any gifts. But true humility is recognizing that anything that I have, it's a gift from God. And particularly here, Paul says, if you think you're wise in this age, you know, you got it figured out. Not the principles of the Bible, but the principles of Stephen Hawking or whatever. The world system. You know how to move and shake. You got it all figured out. Paul goes, if that's your mindset as a Christian leader, you need to change. In fact, he said in Galatians 6, if you think yourself something when you're nothing, you're deceiving yourself. Later in this book, Paul says in chapter 8, if you think you know anything, you don't know anything yet as you ought to know. But this isn't a new truth. This goes all the way back to Proverbs. Proverbs 3:7. Don't be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. Solomon looked at people like this who were so impressed with what they had to say. When you're in a meeting, somebody said, you can tell you're wise in your own eyes with you're way more impressed with what you said than what you heard. You're like, ooh, that strikes too close to home. I've shared this with you. Keith Plummer shared with me years ago, Proverbs 18.3. You get in a conversation. He says, a fool doesn't delight in understanding others, only airing his own opinion. So Paul goes, if you think you're wise in your own eyes, Solomon said, there's more hope for a fool than for him. Isaiah said in Isaiah 5, woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and clever in their own sight. Paul told the Roman Christians, I don't want you to be uninformed so you won't be wise in your own estimation. Like, apparently this is a big deal to God. Romans 12, 16, be of the same mind toward one another. Don't be proud in your mind, but associate with lowly people. Don't be wise in your own estimation. You know the scary thing is is the ability that we have to deceive ourselves. Isn't that frightening? I mean, I can spot sin a mile away in someone else, For some reason, I have trouble seeing it in me. And so the Bible has all these warnings. Pay careful attention to yourself. That's why I need to read my Bible regularly because the word can pierce to the motives and thoughts of my heart. God can speak to me and say, Tom, come on, are you serious? You think I don't see that attitude? And then that's why we need others who love us enough to speak honest truth in a gentle way into our lives. Some of you go, yeah, but pastor, I read the Bible every day. James says, so what? He goes, so what if you read the Bible every day? If you don't do what it says, you're deceiving yourself. And so all of us, and I pray, I say, God, help me not to deceive myself. The psalmist said, search me, O God, and know my heart. So what a wonderful reminder that Christian leaders should not value themselves too highly. But secondly, Christian followers should not value their leaders too highly. Look at verse 21. He says, So then, let no one boast in men. Now, I don't know exactly what he means by that, boasting in men. In 1 Corinthians 4, Paul had said this, or will say this. He goes, I'm I'm telling you what I've written In verse 6, so that no one will become arrogant in behalf of one against the other. So somehow the idea would be, if you're a Christian, don't attach yourself to one person, right? I am of John MacArthur. I am of Pastor Tom. I am of John Beagle. I am of David Jeremiah. I am of Tim Keller. First of all, when we say I am of somebody, It's almost like I'm saying they own me, and it's to make me look good. And so Paul's going to turn it around. He goes, why would you overestimate your leaders and think too highly of them? He says they're like farmers, like carpenters, and like household managers. Thank God for your leaders. And I appreciate, I think all of us, the pastors would say this, We we are very blessed. You guys treat us very well. You're very gracious. But sometimes we can attach ourselves too much to one individual because God may have used them in our lives. And Paul goes, don't do that. So he says, if you're a leader in this house church and, and you got Alexander and he's a really good preacher, he goes, Alexander, don't think too highly of yourself. And then people in Alexander's church, don't think too highly of Alexander. But ultimately, when it comes to valuing the church properly, the third thing he's going to tell us is, we should value Christ supremely. So, why attach yourself to one person? Look at how he words this. He says, verse 21, So then, let no one boast in men, for all things belong to you. Wait, what? Sometimes I ride around this neighborhood, I go, oh, that's a nice house. Now, I know you don't do this, but I covet sometimes. You know what that is? The Bible says in Ten commandments, don't covet your neighbor's house. Well, actually, I'm not really coveting. I want them to have a better one. I just want their house. Yeah, you know, I'm coveting, right? <laughs> so, but the reality is Paul says, all things are yours. That is my house. Oh, look at look at that. I lo- we love to go up to Boseid Lake. That is my lake. Well, what, what do you mean all things are yours? Ultimately, Paul's going to say, why would you be preoccupied to want to be owned by one guy? He goes, you own all of your teachers. I own John MacArthur. I own John Piper. I own Tim Keller. I own R.C. Sproul. I own them all, and so do you. But ultimately, what we ought to focus on is not what we own, but who owns us. He says, All things belong to you. Your teachers, Paul, Apollos, or Cephas. And then he lists six things. The world, the world belongs to you. Life belongs to you. Death belongs to you. Things present belong to you. Things to come belong to you. All things belong to you. And I'm sitting there going, I don't want to die of the COVID. I don't want my friend Paul to die of the COVID. I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know about the economy. What's going to happen to our nation? And Paul goes, relax. Life, death, things present, it's all yours. And you go, yeah, well, I'm going to make a mess of it. He goes, well, it's all yours because it's all his and you belong to him. So notice how he closes it. He goes, all things belong to you. (laughs) And then he flips it around. He goes, and you belong to Christ. And then you go, oh, and by the way, Christ belongs to God. You just keep working your way up the ladder. Now, today we're not going to talk about the functional subordination of Christ. This does not mean God's more important than Jesus. But as you, as you value the community and leaders, Paul's point is this. If you're a leader, don't value yourself too highly. If you're a follower, don't value your leader too highly. But let's all value Christ supremely. That is cool. All things belong to me because I belong to Christ. And if you belong to Christ... What else do you need? What else do I need? If Jesus is all I have, I've got everything I need and more. I don't have to worry about the future. I don't have to worry about my past. And frankly, I don't even need to worry about the present, do I? In fact, I think he told me that. Stop worrying. He goes, what good is it worrying about tomorrow? I can learn to trust in the Lord with all my heart. Why? Because the Lord owns my heart. And if I gave my life to Christ, what have I got to worry about? Have you given your life to Christ? Can you, like Paul say, I know who I believed, and I'm persuaded that he'll keep what I entrusted to him. You give your life to Christ, that makes Allstate look like bad hands. When you're in the hands of Jesus, you're in good shape. But Paul's final word is to the building inspectors. He says, all right, contractors, be careful how you build. All right, realtors, be careful who you value. But now he's going to talk to the, to the building inspectors. One of my relatives put a bid in on a house. They were all excited down in South Jersey. And when they were trying to find out about the, the septic system, they found out that it has a, a cesspool. And the only way they found that out is because they paid a building inspector. And in South Jersey, you can't have a cesspool. You have to have a septic system. And I didn't know the difference either, but we'll talk about that later. (laughs) So Paul's going to change images now because he's going to spin the dice just a little bit and say this. He goes, and by the way, I know what you think of me. I know you guys are inspecting me. And he goes, and I know that some of you have drawn very wrong conclusions about me. You think you know me. But Paul goes, you don't know me. You can't know me because you can't know my motives and you can't know what I do in secret. But he says, God does. Now, I love this passage because I know people who get really worked up about what people think about them. Can you imagine? Some people still worry about what others think of them. Do you? I do. <laughs> Stop lying. I do. I I heard somebody say, I don't care if everybody hates me. And I'm thinking to myself, you're lying. Of course we care if everybody hates us. I don't want everybody to hate me. So Paul was getting hated on by the very people that he led to Christ. They turned on him. And instead of saying, you guys, you're jerks. Look what he does here. He goes, I know you're inspecting me. But here's the third truth we're going to learn. A Christ-centered community must be inspected properly. What does that mean? Well, first of all, he says, here's how I want you to inspect your leaders. Look at verse 1. Let a man regard us in this manner. We're just servants of Christ. It's a different word for servant, but the idea is, don't think too highly of me. I'm just, a, I'm just a, a servant. And then he says, think of me as a steward. A steward is a manager. Like, let's say somebody had a 100-acre estate here. A steward would be the guy who manages the estate. He pays all the bills and Does all the the work in the field. And Paul says, listen, we're stewards of the mysteries of God. And here he's talking about the gospel. He basically says, Jesus snatched me out of my foolishness, took me to Arabia. I sat at his feet and he taught me the gospel. And he taught me the deeper truths of the mysteries of the gospel. And then he said, now go and take the gospel to the the nations and build these little Christ-centered communities. And Paul goes, so that's how I want you to think about me. Well, Well, what's success then? He goes, verse two, in this case, moreover, it's required of stewards that one be found trustworthy. Faithfulness. Listen, God doesn't reward you for your spectacular success. He rewards you for the ordinary daily grind of being faithful, obeying him, trusting him, serving him. In fact, there's a great book for those of you that are Aspiring or interested in going into ministry, it's called Liberation from the Success Syndrome. It's written by a guy who planted a church, and all the cards were in place to build this enormous church, and it didn't happen. And he was disillusioned. And finally, God spoke to him and said, Listen, all I'm asking you to do is to be faithful. And if you want to know if God's pleased with you, don't go, Did a hundred kids get saved? Is my Bible study the biggest on the block? Are you being faithful? So it's a great reminder. He goes, here's how how you should evaluate leaders. Focus on being faithful to God. But leaders, he says, you don't need the favor of your followers. Look at verse 3. He says, to me, it's a very small thing that I should be examined by you or by any human court. How can he say that? That's a superlative in the original. He goes, it's the li- it's, it means nothing to me. In other words, I could care less what you think about me. Whenever I read that verse, I go, how did he get there? I care what people think about me. I'm trying to get past that, aren't you? But this is a great verse to pray over. He goes, it's really, to me, the, the bare minimum that you examine me. He goes, because think about it. On the last day, it doesn't matter what you think about me. It matters what he thinks about me. And then he goes, I'm going to take it a step further. On the last day, it doesn't matter what you think about me. It doesn't even matter what I think about me. It matters what he thinks about me. So how do I, how do I unpack that? He says, I don't really care what you think of me. I don't even examine myself. Verse 4, I'm conscious of nothing against myself, but I'm not acquitted by this. The one who examines me is the Lord. So he goes, here's what I want you to do. Stop judging me before the time. Now there's a biblical type of judgment and an unbiblical type of judgment. We are to judge sin. When a person is sinning, 1 Corinthians 5, Pastor John's going to share this. We judge them. We come to them. We confront them and we we invite them to repent. I want you to judge me if I'm sinning. But what I don't want you to do with any leader is to judge their motives. Because you can't. Nor extrapolate on your imagination of what they do in secret because you don't know and I don't know but the Lord knows and so verse 5 is a very helpful verse a little bit sobering so Paul goes therefore do not go on passing judgment before the time let's wait till the Lord comes so what's going to happen when the Lord comes now get your seatbelt on two things he goes number one when the Lord comes back He will bring to light the things hidden in darkness. You ready for that? If you got a double life going here, and you're like, nobody knows. If if you're one thing on Sunday and a total different person on Monday through Saturday, you might be fooling all the people all the time. But that's coming in the light. And if that's not enough, he says, not only will he bring to light what you're doing in in secret, he's going to bring to light why you're doing what you're doing. The second thing, he says, is the Lord will disclose the motives of men's hearts. See, I don't need the favor of the followers of God because one day we're all, and this is it, going to be exposed by God. How do you feel about that? kind of sobering isn't it it's hard to imagine i've ministered in three churches the lord has blessed seen lots of fruit but when i stand before him will that all burn up and he says you didn't do that for me tom you did that for you tom now at this point we all just want to crawl in our hole and go well then why try anything don't ever wait for perfect motives but it's a good, good thing to have an indicator on the dashboard of your soul that says, why are you doing this? Because God looks at our hearts and our motives. So I want you to pray for me. It's enormously tempting as pastors, especially in American culture, to wanna be successful, to wanna build a growing church, to want to, to be well-regarded. But at the end of the day, I want you to pray for me that my single and for John and Austin and Jeremy and any of our leaders, that our single concern will be to be well regarded by Jesus. So as we close this morning, I am so thankful for this community. God is building a community. We've been through our stuff, haven't we? (laughs) And it ain't over because we're all sinners and God is, is working in all of our lives. But the building inspector's coming. So a couple of things to close with. Are you a foe in the church or are you a real brick? You in or out? You part of God's family or aren't you? If you think taking a seat here on Sundays is going to get you into the kingdom, it won't. And so this morning I want to encourage you, if you've never given your life to Christ... If you don't really know that, we want to help you to know that. We want to help you to know Jesus loves you. He died for you. It's not not complicated. You repent and you trust in Christ. Just give yourself in faith to Christ. Do that this morning. Now, if you are a Christian, right, we're part of the community, and we're supposed to be building this Christ-centered community or rebuilding. Are there any things that you could do better or differently? For example, what are you doing? You say, well, I come to church, and sometimes if I have a little extra money and I put it in the box out there. What could I be doing differently? Maybe there's not a whole lot you need to do differently. Maybe you just need to do it for different reasons. I know I do. I know this speaks to my heart. And it's, it's actually, in many ways, quite comforting, isn't it? To know that even if people don't understand you, God does. And one day the truth will come out about who you really are and what you're really like. So let's try not to be judging others, but rather be building each other up. And so I encourage you to keep praying. Pray for your leaders. We need prayer. We're contractors. We're realtors. We're building inspectors. And so are you. So let's ask God to build us stronger than ever and ultimately that foundation of Jesus Christ will be our solid rock because as he says, the day will reveal it. Would you pray with me? Lord, your word is alive and powerful. It speaks. And if the Lord has spoken to you about salvation, then I encourage you right now, the best you can, just say, Jesus I believe that I'm a sinner and I need you and I want you to be my Lord and Savior. I believe that you died and paid for all of my sins and rose again. I won't fear purgatory. I won't feel con- fear condemnation anymore because I believe that you paid it all. And then take a moment and just ask the Lord like, like I have to, forgive me for wrong motives. Forgive me for being critical of others. And just help me to build a loving community. And then take a moment to pray for your elders and pastors that we will be careful in all of our weakness to build upon Christ. Father, keep this church from the evil one and thank you that because of Christ, all things are ours. So help us to carefully and skillfully in the power of the Holy Spirit, advance the gospel and make disciples who make disciples and build not only here in Yardley, but contribute to building all over the world Christ-honoring communities. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. Have a great day.